morning again. Good to see you guys again. Looking forward to being in this little wonderful epistle, Philemon. Just so much here. A little book that's been so neglected. A little book that's held in derision today by many, sadly. We have to glue this mat to the ground, I think. But a book that has so much for us, and I am so grateful that God in his good providence has allowed us to be here and to see how we can apply the exhortations that are found in Colossians chapter 3, in particular verses 10 through 17. The Lord is so good this way to help us make application and to give us a demonstration of the reality of what that looks like. And that's a good thing. He is good to us that way. And here we sit in this church some 2,000 years later, getting to read this very personal letter between Paul and Philemon over a challenging personal and unique issue that they found themselves in. And I think that's wonderful that we are able to have this glimpse into this relationship and have received this instruction for ourselves. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll, we'll get into this little epistle again this morning. Our blessed Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the time that we can have in your word and uh, to lift up our hearts and, and, and sing to you and to worship you both in song and word as we're doing this morning is a great privilege, a great honor. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. May our time here together be an occasion to rejuvenate and energize and encourage each other. May you be pleased with our worship. May you... Um, instill in us a sense of your presence. We are so grateful for all that you are doing for us, what you've done for this church, how you continue to maintain us and keep us in your good providence. The blessings you bestowed upon us are really quite wonderful, and even as we will reflect on those things this evening in our meeting, we rejoice, Lord, that you have seen fit to preserve us in such a way that we can keep going on and keep moving forward and pursue opportunities to proclaim the word in a dark and dying world. Give us a zeal for doing that. Help us, Lord, to be those who are counting the cost of discipleship, who are fully given over to following you and are prepared to pay that cost, whatever that might be. And we lift up those around the world today who are paying the ultimate price and who have given their lives, um, even this day, perhaps even in this very moment. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless and keep us, preserve us, guide us, and guard us from the evil one, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Philemon, let's read, beginning with verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, 
the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you from my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want you to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And so we asked a question last week, why Philemon? And we took the time then to unpackage and answer that inquiry, making application, going back to Colossians chapter 3 to make certain that we were reminded of what those virtues are that the Christian has that are demonstrated in real time within the body of Christ. Bearing in mind that in that passage in Colossians, Paul is writing to a church and his exhortation is to the church. His anticipation is is that Colossians chapter 3 verses 10 through 17 are going to be a reality. Not only for the church in Colossae, but, but also for other churches, including the church here in Beloit. This is why we still have these letters. God would expect us to to conduct ourselves in such a manner to demonstrate the reality of these very virtues. And so we've taken the time to look at those virtues and we understand them. We're not going to go back and review them and rehash them all today. But ultimately, in Philemon, we see those virtues on display. We see Paul calling Philemon to live those virtues out. Now, what's intriguing to me, too, is the context of the setting of this little letter. I think it's hard for us to grasp the difficulty with which um, uh, this may have been received. You know, we didn't, they didn't have text messages and emails and phones and even telegrams or anything else. It wasn't speedy. Even didn't even have postal service. You, you would write a letter and you would give it to a guy in a caravan and you would say, hey, my mom lives in Corinth. If you're going through, would you mind dropping it off? It might get there. It may never get there. Most likely it wouldn't get there, but that's kind of how communication took place. And so we have a situation here where Onesimus is Philemon's slave, and he runs off, leaves. He is the property of Philemon. Philemon owns him. He's living in Philemon's house, likely some type of house slave. And he leaves, not only leaving, but taking money with him that belonged to Philemon, something of value, and so he's a thief. So as a runaway slave and a thief, he is facing the death penalty. Philemon would have had every right to turn him over to the authorities and have him killed. 
And that happened frequently, if not in killed, sent into some type of even more severe indentured servitude and perhaps into some military indentured service, which would not be pleasant. Perhaps a galley slave chained to his oar like Ben-Hur. Remember that? What a powerful scene that is. One of my favorite movies of all time. Come over sometime, we'll watch it in the barn. I did that once and it was a blast with a bunch of kids. So picture that. That's what Philemon's future looked like. Chained to an oar or dead. By God's providence, most likely through Epaphras, he's introduced to Paul. And the situation is explained, and apparently Paul would tell him the gospel and preach to him and talk to him about Christ and talk to him what, it, what he ought to be doing and appeal to him to turn to Christ, which apparently he then does. We know that. And so he goes back. And all the meanwhile, Philemon has no clue what's going on. Philemon doesn't know where Onesimus is. He doesn't know he's with Paul. He doesn't know that Paul is talking to him. He doesn't know that Onesimus has been saved. So imagine his surprise when Tychicus and Onesimus walk around the corner back in his house. What are you doing here? What's going on? And here they stood. Not only standing there, but bearing gifts of great significance. The letter to the Colossians, this letter to Philemon, the personal letter, the letter to the Ephesians, perhaps another epistle, we don't know. And there he stands, and Philemon is confronted now with this man who is his property, who ran away and stole from him. Now what? Now what am I going to do? How do I deal with this? Our reaction would tend to be, especially in that context, would be to be very difficult and challenging and to take care of business, as it were. And he would have had every right to do so. I can only imagine the emotions that he was experiencing. Paul understood that he needed to send him back, Onesimus, that is, to Philemon. He wanted to keep him, but he couldn't because he didn't have Philemon's consent because Philemon didn't even know where he was. So here he comes with a letter, and the letter basically says, Philemon, I want you to love Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Wow. That is unbelievable. That is insanely difficult. And here's the thing, too. This letter is then going to be read out loud, most likely by Philemon's son, Archippus, who is the pastor of the church. <laughs> Can you create a, different, a better fact pattern than this? It's unbelievable. With his wife sitting there, and all the people, and maybe even the false teacher. We don't know. There's clearly a false teacher there. Whether he was there at that moment or not, we don't know. Presumably he was, because he arose from, within, from out of their midst. He came up from within them. And so you have this amazing, powerful setting. I don't think, we, we just can't lose the punch of this. And so in the midst of all of this, think of all of the human emotion at work. Think of all the different feelings, the ebbing, the flowing, the anger, the hurt, the, the um, sense of, of deprivation. All of a sudden, this guy comes waltzing back into your midst with a letter from the Apostle Paul, no less, saying, Philemon, my dear brother, I love you and I want you to love this man too. Wow. That's huge. And it's hard. 
That's not easy to do. And Paul's anticipation is that the congregation is going to help Philemon do that. So what you then have is a, a setting where others are hearing this letter being read and they're hearing all these words. They're being reminded of, of who Philemon is and Paul has very grand words for him, encouraging words, words of adoration, and, and he has a good testimony. He's opened his home. The church is there. He's a man of God. He has a good testimony, and now he's going to have to demonstrate to them in a very real way the reality of his salvation and the manner by which he treats Philemon. Philemon doesn't just get to check off a box and say, I went to church on Sunday and I opened my home to the church and I provided food and beverages at the close of the service. I've ticked all the boxes. I'm done for the day. I don't have to do anymore. I'm good. But no. Legalism is always easier than righteousness. Righteousness now is going to require that Philemon demonstrate the reality of his conversion by the manner he treats Onesimus, a thieving runaway slave. Based upon something else, too, he's not had a chance at this point in real time to even see if whether or not Onesimus' conversion is genuine. So he's relying on Paul's word that he is a true believer. I want you to trust me, Philemon, is what Paul is basically saying. So much so that if I could have kept him here, I would have. So Paul kind of validates the genuineness of his conversion. And I want you to embrace him. And Onesimus, I want you to go back into that setting that you ran away from. As would be the inclination of any man, right? Any of us enslaved would want to leave, right? And, and go, get away. But he says to Onesimus, I'm sending you back. And when you go back... You're going to be not a whining, complaining, difficult person, but you're going to be a slave, not only for Philemon, but a slave for Christ. And you're going to serve Philemon as if you're serving Christ. And in that context, you're going to live out the reality of your conversion too. And you're going to show Philemon and the church that you belong to Christ and that you are one of his. I, I mean, I'm blown away by this. I don't know if you are or not, but I am. These are insanely difficult things for people to do. But it speaks to the power of the transforming work of the gospel in our lives and what it means to be new creation in Jesus Christ. We have now been equipped to do what seems to be the implausible, the imponderable, the impossible. By what? By our conversion, by our transformation, by our reconciliation, bearing in mind who we were before God saved us, using that alone. And here's the thing, whether or not Philemon would have received him with open arms or in a welcoming way, Paul's anticipation would have been that you still serve Christ. And Philemon's exhortation would be the same from Paul. Regardless of whether Onesimus comes back and he's the best slave that you've ever had, I still expect him to, for you to treat him with respect and dignity and, and encouragement and exhortation. And so what we find then is that for Paul, the default 
condition and position of a Christian is to go into the virtues, go into those things that we've been given and display them in real time. And for Paul, it seems as if the absence of those things would indicate a problem in the heart. Is there a genuine conversion? Are these virtues evident? Are they present? Not conditioned upon how one may treat another person, but are they the manner in which you are now defaulting to respond to a situation? And church, are you helping your brothers and sisters in Christ be reminded of that and do that? This goes to the issue as to why Paul would exhort those in churches, if you see your brother in sin, ignore it. No, if you see your brother not doing these things, if you see your sister not engaging in people, with people this way, we ought to be exhorting each other in that context. That's why this fellowship is so important. This is why we don't abandon it, neglect it, ignore it, flee from it, run from it. You stay. You become a part of it. You engage in it for the edification of the body and for the protection of your own souls. That's what's going on here. That's why Philemon is so incredibly important. It's the only real-time demonstration that we have as a standalone epistle that shows the application of a biblical principle at work. That's amazing to me. We have then a real human life situation between two people where Paul grabs something that he's teaching and applies it to two people and a church in real time. That's what's happening. And the interesting thing is this. Paul would anticipate, and he says it, verse 8, Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul is basically saying, I could claim my apostleship, I could claim my age, I could claim that I'm a prisoner, you would be sympathetic and do it for those reasons. No, I want you to do it because you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the impetus, that is what drives us forward. Always, always. Notice love. Go back to Colossians 3. Love, again, is that which binds together blends together in harmony the Christian virtues. So, Paul then is anticipating that Philemon's going to demonstrate that in real time. I think it's also significant that we don't have anything that indicates here that, this is, that there's a political solution to Onesimus' plight. It's a church solution. <laughs> wow, it is. It's not a political solution. It's not a social solution. It's not a cultural construct solution. It's not a modification of the current mores and social constructs of the day or the political agendas of the day. It's a church solution. It belongs to the church. And so what that means then is that the anticipation is that Onesimus is not coming back as a flag bearer for freedom for slaves. He's not waving a flag. He didn't orchestrate on his way to back to Colossae and Philemon's home a whole bunch of other slaves who are going to march and then kneel in Philemon's house in protest. 
He doesn't go and gin up a bunch of other churches to join him in his plight as a slave who's being forced to go back and how unfair that is and how difficult and hard that is. And I want you to come with me and march on his church, on his house. Let's demonstrate. Let's make the change by demonstrating. No. He doesn't claim he's being treated differently because of a social caste structure, claiming that he's been subjected to some type of racism or disproportionate treatment or discrimination. He doesn't start a riot, gathering up slaves along the way with clubs and sticks and swords and whatever else, and march into Philemon's home and and beat him to death. Or burn down Colossae. Or support those who did, or would, or want to. No, he humbly, look at this, he humbly goes back in submission to the instruction of the Apostle Paul, yielding his heart and his life to Christ. He's counting the cost, you see, He's going to go back, and he's going to submit himself back into that construct. And seemingly does so without complaint, reservation, or hesitation. This is is amazing. And it stands in stark contrast to what we're being told today are the solutions to so many of the problems that we have. The church was so deficient when we went through this recent episode that we did with the, the, the social justice movements and things of that nature and that hue and the outcry. Where was the application of Philemon in all of that? Where was the application of Colossians 3, 10 through 17 in all of that? Church is becoming politicized to the point of losing the opportunity to even communicate the gospel effectively conferences that I attend and being fully co-opted by that kind of a mindset was ridiculous and it was wrong in many, many ways. And so we have here then Onesimus and Philemon, men who would be naturally at conflict with each other because of the situation that they find themselves in, being told to embrace each other in Christ and to serve each other in Christ. And so we see this, verse 10. Paul says, again, this is a very direct letter to Philemon. I appeal to you, Philemon, for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. This is a powerful verse. Here, Paul is now communicating um, to um, Philemon that, to, to Philemon, that Onesimus is a believer. This idea of whom I have begotten in my imprisonment means that Paul was instrumental in the person responsible for telling him about Christ and leading him to the Lord, so to speak. Telling him about Jesus Christ and proclaiming the gospel to him. And by and through that means God saved him. And so now he refers to Onesimus as his child. That's significant. So for a Philemon reading that, that's going to be a big deal. Paul is now just not referring to Onesimus as another guy, but he's saying to Philemon, he's my child, whom I have begotten. What that says for us, too, is the significance of what it means to be born again, and what it means to be born again in the context of the fellowship and the the bond that you and I then have, too, with each other 
as the redeemed of Christ. That's important. So he appeals to Philemon on the basis that Onesimus is his child in the spiritual sense. He's, he's given birth to him in the context of introducing him to Christ and God saving him. And so Paul personalizes this to a great extent to again drive home for Philemon how important it is that Philemon be treated in accordance with what Scripture says. Because his anticipation is that since Philemon is a believer, that, Philemon, that since Onesimus is a believer, that Philemon is going to treat him as such. Putting aside these other issues that he has with him as a runaway thief, slave. Verse 11 is interesting as well, and I love this. Think about this for a minute. He who was useless to you is now made useful to you. There's a play on words here because the word Onesimus generally means useful one. And so Paul, kind of playing on that idea, I, uh, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So he's actually living out the true meaning of his name. This speaks to the transformative power of salvation. Notice the fact that Onesimus was known to have been a useless slave, and he was. He was a thief and a runaway. That's not very productive, is it? And so what we do know then is that in the context of salvation, salvation is a regeneration. It brings about a new nature. This new nature is demonstrated now in Onesimus by making him what? Useful. The implication being that Onesimus is not only going to be your brother in Christ, but he's actually going to be the slave that he was supposed to be. He's useful to me. He's useful to you. He's useful to the church. Perhaps he has spiritual gifts. Every Christian has at least one. And now he's going to be able to use that. It's said, and there's no real validation or verification of it, but there are those who have recorded through church history that Onesimus did go on to leave and ultimately pastor another church in Ephesus, perhaps. Again, there's no way to be dogmatic about that, but there are some indications in some historical documents that that's what took place. And that he was ultimately martyred. I think the story was that he was eaten by a leopard or something like that, or attacked by a leopard. I, but again, that's conjecture. But nonetheless, he was useful. He was useful in the moment. He was useful in the church. He came back, which also speaks volumes. What a testimony that is. The fact that he just walked back in the door is a lot. And so we find then that Onesimus, who was useless, is now considered by Paul to be his spiritual child. He sends him back, which is also significant for Paul because he's not quite sure how Philemon's going to respond. So he has a bond now with Onesimus. He wants Onesimus to be treated properly, correctly, biblically, kindly, gently, lovingly. And Paul says in verse 12, I have sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart. There's a real bond between Onesimus and Paul. There's something very significant there. Paul had a deep compassion and love for Onesimus. He had seen God do a mighty work in him, change him in a dramatic way. Paul says, my very 
heart. My very heart is engaged in this. He's a different man. Onesimus is a different man. And I'm sending him back to you. And I'm sending him back to you with, with, with great feeling and emotion and, and an encouragement that you do the right thing with him because I'm sending to you with my very heart. I'm like sending a part of me back to you, Philemon. That's significant. It's interesting that Paul and Onesimus could have found anything in common. Paul, a high-ranking apostle within the church structure at that point in time, one who was considered and held in high regard, a Jew, prisoner, the improbability of him forming a friendship with a runaway Gentile slave. Wow. The gospel at work. The gospel at work. A demonstration of the reality of what Paul would say in Colossians 3.11 about that there is no distinction between slave and free, Jew and Gentile. Paul living out the reality of that. In real time, this relationship is highly improbable. But in the gospel time, in the gospel framework, it is a result of the transformative work of Jesus Christ on the heart. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. It's astonishing. So um, we see then that Paul perhaps we can understand that passage in verse 12 to mean that Paul, there was some reluctance on Paul's part to send Onesimus back. He loved him. He wanted to keep him there. I would have loved to have kept him with me, verse 13, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. What a transformation that this man has undergone. What a remarkable picture of new creation in Jesus Christ, so much so that Paul wants him to stay there to help him while he's in prison and engaged in gospel outreach that way. It's quite striking. And so we see then that this heart of compassion that Paul has for Onesimus then flows over into his exhortations to Philemon, and his hope is that Philemon too will feel about Onesimus the same way that he does. That is the point. Verse 14 is interesting, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything. Paul is acting in deference to the fact that Onesimus is Philemon's property. Paul would not have the right to keep Onesimus because it would be like stealing someone's Buick or tractor or something like that because Onesimus was property. And so he had to go back. He had to give him back. And that's what he does. He would love to keep him. He loves Onesimus. They've formed a bond of friendship. Onesimus is helping Paul do ministry, gospel ministry from prison. Significantly, so much so that Paul wants to keep him. He has his heart. Paul gives him up. Without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Show me the reality of your transformed heart, Philemon. Show me that you're going to treat Onesimus the way that you ought to. 
I want to see that you're going to treat Onesimus in the manner that would be consistent with who you are in Christ. I want you to do that. I want you to demonstrate that. I don't want to make you do that. I don't want to necessarily beat you over the head. I want to encourage you and exhort you. So that's what's going on. Verse 15, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. Well, here Paul speaks to um, the idea that the useless slave that was lost to Philemon for a time is now going to be his brother in Christ forever. Amazing. It's just amazing. Perhaps Philemon was thinking, I'm glad I'm rid of him. Here comes Onesimus walking back through the door. And Philemon's going, what on earth is he doing back? I've already got a house full of worthless slaves. I don't need another one. What's he here for? Oh, my goodness. Aphia comes running into the kitchen. Philemon, do you see who's here? Archippus, like, oh, what am I going to do now? How am I going to preach about this? <laughs> It's interesting to think about those things. Paul says to him, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, speaking to the idea of what was behind God's hand in all of this, which speaks to God's sovereignty over everything. God working and weaving and maneuvering through the lives of people to bring about a demonstration of his glory an opportunity for exalting the glory of Christ and salvation. The idea being now that he comes back to you, not as one who is useless, but one who is going to be extremely useful to you and who, by the way, you will now have forever. Forever. The man who stole from you, the man who fled from you, which in essence was robbing Philemon of the purchase price that he paid for Onesimus, is now coming back to you a transformed man, a new creation in Jesus Christ. So much so that he's willing to come back to you and be your slave, not only for you, but for Christ. And he's doing it for me too. That's the implication here. What an amazing picture. What a testimony. What a powerful picture of the manner in which the gospel changes a man's, a woman's heart. I guess for us, as we look at this, we have to gauge where we are in relationship to the demonstration of these virtues in our own life and, and how we do that and how the church works in that context. That's important. But also to be mindful of the fact that salvation does speak to the, to, to the idea of transformation. I am not what I once was. Paul would speak to that issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he talks about the power of the gospel to take people who had been engaged in all sorts of sins. And he would say of them, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. You see, friends, the gospel doesn't just leave us where we are. It takes us down a whole different and new path the narrow path, the path where the cost of discipleship may be high like it was for John the Baptist. 
the narrow way where the cost of discipleship will require someone like Onesimus to go back to being a slave. The cost of discipleship that requires a man like Philemon to welcome the steving slave back into his home with open arms and treat him like a brother in Christ and love him in that manner. The implication being that no grudges to be carried, no revenge to be exhorted, extorted, no pound of flesh to be exacted. Bring him back, love him, and show me Philemon that you are a genuine believer. Christ would say that you will know his disciples by the manner in which they love each other. He says that is the earmark. We know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love does a lot of things, but it also doesn't do a lot of things. It's never selfish. It doesn't, it's not loud. It's not self-promoting. It's acquiescing. So what we see here then is all these things in demonstration in real time. Let's not lose the meaning of this. Let's not avoid the application of it because it's significant. It's here for a reason, and that's the reason that we have this little book of Philemon. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up with verse 16 and continue through these amazing words that Paul has in this concluding section of this little epistle. And I trust that you will take this as an occasion to examine your own heart and your own life, your own walk with the Lord, where you are in terms of demonstrating these virtues in your own life is important. And Philemon stands as a clarion call for us all to check ourselves in that regard and to make certain that our motivation is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the significant piece of it. We serve out of gratitude, not out of compulsion. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the exhortation that we have from this wonderful little epistle. Thank you for saving it for us. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for Philemon. Thank you for Onesimus. I'm looking forward to meeting them someday. Looking forward to having conversations with them about the dynamics of all these things and, and the wonders and glories of your grace. In the meantime, let us revel in what we know about them. Let us praise you, Lord, for the transformation that you wrought in both of these men's hearts and for the power of the gospel to save and transform. We praise you that you've extended yourself to us through your son, Jesus Christ, whom you gave, gave to us freely, who actively obeyed, even to the point of death, to secure for us this wonderful salvation that is so great. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for loving us that much. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.